Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for June 21st, 2015. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Amy Jacks Dean, co-pastor with Russ Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. Her sermon today is entitled, The Gritty Details of Everyday Life. Didn't we just make this triumphal entry not too long ago? Weren't the children just waving their processional palm branches recently? How can we already be here again so quickly? During Palm Sunday and Easter, we took a break from preaching through the Gospel of Mark and celebrated the season with these appropriate texts. But we weren't here yet in our preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Today, we are here, and we've picked Mark back up, and now we are here again. The people cheering Jesus on, he is hailed as the one. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, and all of that. Jesus would have been a great youth minister. I remember when I first got started in ministry, I was done with seminary and the classroom experience and was immediately thrown into youth and college ministry to put into practice all that I had learned in the classroom. All that Old Testament and New Testament, all that church history and theology and ethics and pastoral care, not to mention all the Hebrew and Greek. I was so prepared only to learn that seminary doesn't teach classes that you really need to know how to get the job done. I had apparently missed the class on how to buy buy the right amount of food to feed 25 college students for a week's mission trip. I had clearly missed the class on how to effectively and efficiently pack an ice chest because that seems like all I did in my first years of ministry. My first job was at First Baptist Church in Clemson, South Carolina as the minister of college students and the kitchen and the ice machine were on the basement level and there was no elevator. How many trips up and down those stairs to pack all the food and paper products and ice chests to go on the trips. I can vividly remember the moment, wringing wet with sweat, taking a break on one of the landing spots of the set of stairs, I can vividly remember when I realized that most of what I did in ministry did not require the graduate level courses that I had spent three years in poverty obtaining. Most days, it felt like I was an event planner with a little theology thrown in here and there. Ministry was really all about the gritty details of everyday life. This setup to the triumphal entry leads me to think that Jesus really was more like a youth or college minister. He was always having to tend the details, getting boats ready to travel across, finding out how much food was on hand for the multitudes, securing the room and preparing the table for the Last Supper, 
and chasing down a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. I love the way the preacher Thomas Long puts all of that together and makes me see probably for the first time what a detailed person Jesus was. Now he did send his disciples ahead of him before this triumphal entry to get everything ready, but it seems obvious to me that Jesus had already done the pre-work and set things in motion. He had already called ahead and made the arrangements. All they had to do was pick up the donkey. His face had been set towards Jerusalem for some time, and the fateful day had finally arrived, and the processional parade began just like he had planned it in all the details. They cheered him, they rolled out the red carpet for him, they waved at him and they shouted their praise of him. And when he finally made his way into the city proper, he did the most obvious thing that Jesus would do. He went to the temple. Last Wednesday, in historic Charleston, South Carolina. Some people gathered in the most obvious place for the faithful to gather on a Wednesday night. At church, it was Bible study night. And they welcomed a stranger into their midst. I imagine that there was prayer, honest, real, emotional, as they shared their worries and their joys of the gritty parts of the everydayness of their lives. I imagine that there was music, soul-piercing gospel songs that were sung all the way back to the time when they had to sing to get their people through slavery and beyond. Perhaps it was even that kind of singing that I've seen black folks do where they sing while tears roll down their face and yet their voice never wavers. I wish I could sing like that. I imagine they opened their Bibles and poured into the Word of God, grasping for an old truth that might still set them free to be all that God created them to be. I can hear it now. Yes, yes, Lord, preach it, tell it, tell it. And then they welcomed the stranger among them. And he opened fire and he killed nine in the church. Those faithful believers who had perhaps been triumphant into their own city last Wednesday, who headed just like Jesus straight to their place of worship and those believers were killed. It is often how triumphal entry stories end. They often end in death, sacrificial, loving death that does not make sense. This whole passage that we are to look at for today doesn't make sense. 
the parts that I'm going to read and the parts that I don't have time to read. It doesn't make sense to me. After the grand entry and thorough looking over of the temple, Jesus retreats with his disciples, and upon his return the next day to Jerusalem, he curses a fig tree to never bear fruit again. He was hungry. He wanted a fig. It had no figs. He cursed it. This is what it says. On the following day, after he had made his triumphal entry, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, that's just odd, isn't it? Surely, you must understand, this is not about figs or fig preserves or fig jelly or fig pie or fig ice cream. It's not about hunger. It's not about fruit. It's not about trees. Surely you must understand that this is about something much bigger than a leafy yet fruitless tree. This is about religion, faith, and the temple. Jesus is not at all pleased with the workings of the religious leaders. They had lost their way. They had sought might and power at the expense of grace and mercy and service to the most lowly. They had turned the temple into a place of business, a for-profit outfit that forgot about the oppressed. You may not know, the fig tree was an emblem of peace, security, prosperity, and it figured prominently when description of the golden ages of Israel history, past, present, future, are given. The fig tree shows up in the Garden of Eden, at the Exodus, in the wilderness, the Promised Land, the reign of Solomon. It always shows up as a sign of goodness and blessing and prosperity. But the fig tree stands for the temple. Who had lost its way? When Jesus curses the fig tree, he's speaking about what's happening in the temple, not about figs. The religious ones had lost their way. The very next scene is where Jesus all out loses it in the temple. He turns over the tables and has an all out hissy fit because religion had lost its way. The faithful had forgotten about the power of their prophetic voice on behalf of those who had no voice. They were interested in power, period. The faithful had forgotten about the power of their prophetic voice. So he sees this fig tree, and they all would have known he's not talking about figs. They knew he was talking about, in our language, the church. And then this happens. They, then they came to Jerusalem. He's just cursed the fig tree. 
And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, It is not written, my house shall be called, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. I'm afraid, religious ones, we have lost our way again. I'm afraid Jesus would have yet another hissy fit upon us for a lot of things, but none more obvious than for our complicity in racism. For our inability to speak up and speak out and act upon and make changes to a society that still judges people more by the color of their skin than the content of their character. If he had come here in a triumphal entry on Tuesday and we walked back into this place, he would have cursed a fig tree on the way to get here to tell us that we have lost our way again. As long as we live in and continue to support a segregated society in which our schools, our neighborhoods, and our churches live within the dividing lines of color and stereotype and prejudice, it will be no wonder that there aren't more travesties like Charleston. It's more than bubbling under the surface. And white folks better learn how to talk about it and listen about it and act about it. White folks better learn how to ask the hard questions and to stand alongside. White folks better start confessing and apologizing. And if you think, well, at least I'm not racist, at least I don't really harbor any prejudice, you are lying to yourself. White folks better join black folks hand in hand, arm in arm, and speak truth to power. And white folks better start naming racism for the evil that it is. Black folks are tired of gathering and praying about it. They don't want to sing Kumbaya anymore. They want to hear somebody speak the truth. And the truth is... This is not right. It's not about political partisan politics, but it is very much political. So I posted on my good friend Dr. Rodney Sallard's Facebook page yesterday this question. I know he doesn't speak for every black person, but I know he speaks of a truth that I cannot know without his help. So here was my question for him. I purposefully did it publicly so that lots of people could comment, and they did. And I said to him, Rodney, if you were a white woman pastor born and raised in South Carolina and now living only a few miles away from that state line, and you were going to climb into a pulpit and preach in the morning to a mostly white, affluent, privileged people, what would you say? 
his response, and I'll just simply read what he wrote because he says it better and more authentically than I can. He said, I think I would say that we cannot keep up with business as usual. I think I would say that the church in America has failed to emphasize the importance of all humanity and speak of a vision of human union beyond race. I think I would say that race is a fiction created to drive a wedge between human beings and make some feel privileged at the expense of others with darker skin. I think I would say that the white church has fostered and perpetuated racist thought and the privilege that came from it and that it has never done the work to explore that history and overcome that ideology. I think I would say that God would not be happy with the qualified church separated into white, black, Latino, and other racially qualified types when Jesus died to unite us to God's self and to each other. I think I would say that we need to do better because we all bear some responsibility for not addressing that problem of race once and for all. I think I would say that it's now time to act for the time for talking has come and gone. That's what I might say. The line that stood out to me the most, the white church has fostered and perpetuated racist thought and the privilege that came from it and that it's never done the work to explore that history and overcome that ideology. And I would challenge you today that if that makes you prickle a little bit and say, that's not true, then it probably really is the truest for you. If it makes you bristle a little bit, it's probably all over your hands. <clears throat> a friend from Birmingham emailed us on Thursday morning. He said he was a bit afraid for us. He knew that we would speak out and take stands in the coming days, potentially making ourselves more of a target. Don't think that every pastor in America isn't thinking about that today. But I couldn't help but feel embarrassed about even thinking it a little bit for myself because that's what black people feel all the time. All the time. Have you seen the side-by-side -side photos of the arrest of Dylan Roof? Being carefully led to his police car with a bulletproof vest, posted beside the police officer, wrestling to the ground a 16-year-old black girl in a bikini who was trespassing at a swimming pool. And you wonder why the black community feels helpless and outraged and why they don't want to talk about it anymore or gather together in Kumbaya about it anymore. And yet the family members of those killed have offered words of forgiveness and are praying for God's mercy upon the killer's soul. Perhaps that's why there hasn't been mass rioting and looting because one church is tending to the gritty details of prayer and practicing what they preach. 
We come here today to remind ourselves that we have a lot of work to do, that our hands are dirty with the evil of racism. And if you don't know how you are involved in that, you have more work to do than anybody else. I have dirty hands from the evil of racism. And if we don't learn how to say this out loud to one another, nothing will change out there. Do not, do not live in fear, and for God's sake, do not live in despair. I beg of you, do not live in fear. The moment you feel afraid, I want you to do something that makes you feel more afraid. Be careful, be cautious, do your homework, but do not live in fear. You cannot. It is evil. It's sin to live in fear. We come to this place to remind ourselves that our response is confession, repentance, and forgiveness. I am convinced that the only reason those mothers and sisters and aunts and all of those people who spoke in that courtroom could say, I forgive you, is because they learned it in their church on a Wednesday night prayer and Bible meeting. And whether they really believe it deep in their core or not, I don't know, but they know how to say it until it becomes a reality. Confession, repentance, forgiveness, it is the language of the church. It is the gritty detail of the everyday life of faith. I just don't know how much more we can talk about it. I am convinced there's more we can do about it. I'm going to start by talking to my black friends. Because most often white folks don't know how to do when it comes to this. Oh, I never got to write an ending. <laughs> this is as fresh as it's ever been. So I guess I'll just stop there. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.